this time, our, our scripture is from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 8. If you can um, read along with me, either on the screen or in your Bibles. But let me read this passage. It says, in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son but as for the cowardly the faithless and the detestable as for the murderers and the sexual immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death and if you can say this all together the grass withers the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever well good morning King's Cross it is a privilege and a joy to be with you this morning, to worship with you, to speak to you from God's word. I do bring you greetings from inside the lines of D.C., our nation's uh, capital. Um, I, I am, I'll say this a little later, I am a native New Yorker. Uh, and so right now I'm really, really hoping for a Yankees Nationals World Series so I get to go to one of the games. Um, all right, well, I, I want to speak to you this morning out of the scripture passage that was just read uh, into your hearing, um, particularly the first five verses of Revelation uh, chapter 21 uh, on this subject, um, the beauty of destiny's children, the beauty of destiny's children, and the the primary point of this message is simply that, simply this, that destiny's children, destiny's children uh, live in this world right now with the reality that they are being prepared for life as it ought to be. We live right now where we are in the reality that we are being prepared for life as it ought to be. And this month, the month of October, uh, according to bridalguide.com, uh, rather, the month of October is one of the three most popular months to, uh, to get married. The other months are June uh, and September. And they say that these three months, June, September, and October, are the most popular months uh, to get married because the weather is typically beautiful in early, in, in, uh, early summer and, uh, and early fall. And I've personally performed uh, lots and lots of weddings over my years in pastoral ministry. And frankly, in my experience, those wedding dates have actually been all over the calendar. I haven't done a survey of uh, the folks who I have uh, performed weddings for, but I su suspect that the reason that the dates are all over 
the calendar year is because the most important thing is not actually the wedding date, but the, the marriage itself. When my wife and I will take a couples through pre-marriage counseling, one of the messages that we, we work hard to, to emphasize and to uh, repeat is that we're not simply trying to prepare them for, uh, for a wedding day. We're trying to prepare them for a, a long life together as husband and wife. It's so easy as you are prepared for a wedding to become consumed with all the details and trying to make sure that the day goes well and that everything is, is is picturesque and, and beautiful. And when you're consumed with all of those details, you can easily miss the whole point, which is your union together in the new home that's being formed by that union. So I always tell couples that the day is going to be beautiful, even if everything isn't perfect, the day is going to be beautiful because of what's taking place. And most, if not all of us, have been to a wedding. Many of us have Bridesmaids, groomsmen, flower girls, ring bearers, ushers. And when you're at a wedding, any number of thoughts can run through uh, your head. And uh, typically for me, and I know it's the case uh, for my wife as well, we will reflect back on our own wedding day. As I hear the vows, I'll be reminded uh, of my own vows and be renewed in, in my own commitment to live them out. If you've never been married and you attend a wedding, you can experience a sense of longing as you anticipate the day when you'll be married. If you were once married and are no longer married because of death or divorce, while you might be happy for the newlywed couple, weddings can be challenging. They can remind you of your loss or the accompanying pain and disappointment of that loss. There can be a longing for relief from that disappointment or pain, and so whether your experience at weddings is delightful or difficult, whether they are, uh, are mostly picturesque or painful, it should amaze us that when God wants to give us a picture of what heaven is like, the imagery he uses is of a wedding. Do you want to know the destiny of those who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, then picture the, the best marriage you can imagine and then multiply it by infinity. As Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. That's what happens when your kids grow up watching Disney movies. When God wants to declare to his people what their destiny is, have the picture in your mind of a beautiful bride decked out for in, uh, 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 decked out in anticipation uh, for life together with her husband. Understand that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. In the first two chapters, the pinnacle of creation is the man and the woman. We hear these words in, from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 at weddings all the time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Those words weren't just for repetition at weddings. They also set a trajectory forward in anticipation of these words in Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, as she descended out of heaven from God after being prepared and adorned as a bride for her husband. 
And I heard a great voice out of heaven say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. And he will live with them. And they, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What does it mean to have this kind of destiny? What does it mean to be destiny's children? It means a guarantee of beauty, a guarantee of beauty, personal beauty, collective beauty, where nothing that is not beautiful will ever exist again. It sounds like a fantasy, but it is, it is backed up by the full faith and credit of God himself. So I want to hone in on two things as we work through this passage from Revelation chapter 21. I want to talk about longing for beauty and living for beauty. Longing for beauty and, and living for beauty. Destiny's children live with a longing for all things to be made beautiful. That is the longing for everything to be the way it ought to be. They have to become comfortable with the fact that as long as they are in this world, they will not escape the reality of longing for something more and something better. Things, things are not the way they ought to be. The wedding is scheduled, but they don't know the date. Secondly, Destiny's children live together in the reality that the future promise of beauty has broken in on the present world. As they are being prepared for life as it ought to be, they experience a life of beauty even now where they are. Therefore, life now is not a hopeless venture. They have eyes to see. They have eyes to see that renewal, that renovation, that transformation is coming. John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had they passed away here toward the last end, uh, the, the end of this last book of the Bible, what we are seeing with greater clarity is how God intends to satisfy the longings of his people. One of the questions in the Bible that God's people ask him over and over again is how long? How long, O Lord? King David asked in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, the, the martyrs, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, how long can you wait for things to be the way they ought to be? Do you know what words repeat themselves over and over and over again in the book of Revelation? If you read it, you will find that John keeps saying, I saw this. I saw that, I heard this, I, I heard that the covers, the covers are being pulled back for him so that with his own eyes he sees and with his own ears he hears the true reality. 
It's not that the things that you and I see with our eyes and and hear with our, our ears or experience with our senses is not true. It's just that what our senses provide us doesn't tell us the whole story. What our senses give us doesn't give us, uh, doesn't provide us the full picture. There's more to it. The Lord gives John and the church insight into what's going on behind what we are able to perceive. The curtains are pulled back and John says he sees a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and earth are passed away. The sea was no more. John is letting us know this is where the world is headed. This is the world's destiny. Not only that, John says, but the holy city, the new Jerusalem, I saw that too. I saw that city as she descended out of heaven from God after she was prepared as a bride who had been adorned for her husband. I didn't only see the destiny of the world, I saw the beautiful destiny of the people of God. And John was not the first to see it, and he wasn't the first to say it. The Lord declared it to Isaiah centuries before John was alive. When when Israel was in exile, we read it this morning in our call to worship from Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah was in exile longing to be restored to her land. And the Lord gives Isaiah a message in chapter 62 verses 3 to 5. He says, the Lord says to his people, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no longer be be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In Isaiah's day, the people's longing was too short-sighted. They just wanted to get back to a plot of land in Palestine, and the Lord had to say to them, your vision is too small. It's too short-sighted. I'm not just concerned with some little piece of land. Uh, I'm remaking the whole thing. And hundreds of years later, after Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, after he comes to save his people, giving up his life on the cross for their sake, being buried in the tomb, rising on the third day in triumphant victory over death, after all of that, his people are still waiting. Where's our resurrection? Where's our resurrection? How long, O Lord? The one who sits on the throne has to reiterate, behold, I am making all things new. Write it down, John, because these words are faithful and they are true. It is done. I am the alpha. I am the omega, the beginning and the end. You see, we ache. We groan. We long for things to be better than they are. 
the compromising and the idolatrous nature of humanity is that we try to fix our longings for beauty by ourselves. Like I like to, I like to hold out hope for that beautiful, aesthetically pleasing athletic body. You heard Pastor Paul say I do CrossFit. I am not ranked I'm ranked maybe at the bottom in the CrossFit, but not ranked in any measurable way. I batter my body doing CrossFit. I try to do a whole 30 diet once a, once a year. And I tell people, here's the deal. I'm just trying to delay the decay. Like the decay is coming. There's no, there's no avoiding. I'm just trying to delay it for as long as possible. The human mind has been able to discover and develop great medical advances. We put our minds to use through technology, attempting to make life better, to heal what's broken, whether it be bones or relationships. I'm glad that I can video conference with my cousin for free who lives in France when she wants to talk. I can't afford to fly over there and, and visit with her anytime I want, but I can see her, her face. I'm glad that medical research can continues to discover remedies and, and medicines that, that attack the diseases that attack our bodies. I'm glad that the creative genius in humanity tries to strive for something better by making beautiful music and beautiful art. However, in all of our striving, in all of our longing, we cannot make things so beautiful, so radically new that there will be no more decay. Death is not the great enemy defeated by modern medical technology. Death is the great enemy that is defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. And John is declaring to us that only God can do this. Only God can do it. He is the source of beauty, and so only he, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, can make all things beautiful in its time. Only God can make all things new. It's not the outcome of human scientific or technological advancement. As one commentator put it, the new city comes down uh, out of heaven from God, a sheer miracle a gift that is bestowed at the end of history and not the outcome of history. In other words, the beauty of the bride, the beauty of the new creation is not the outcome of human progress and advancements. It is a gift from God. That word in the text, behold, is not a call first and foremost to do something. It is a call to observe and to see and to look. Behold, I'm making all things new. Watch and see. It's an invitation to look and to believe and to rejoice. God is committed to the beautiful renovation of his creation. The word for new that's used in our text typically indicates newness in terms of quality. In other words, through the victory of Jesus Christ over death, God is executing his renovation project. And this longing, this longing that we have for our beautification and for the beautification of this world, it can weigh us down. 
It can weigh us down because try as we might, we cannot successfully cover our eyes and all of the ugliness. The beauty that we are longing for is not the airbrush sheen of the fashion magazine trying to hide all the imperfections. We're coming up on the Advent season and Fleming Rutledge last year, I think she published a new book on Advent and she put it well. She says, to grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. Entering into the very worst, she says, means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. For instance, she writes, a facility for the most profound cases of developmental disability. What hope is there for a ward full of people who will never sit up, walk, speak, or feed themselves? Tourists, she says, go to the site of Auschwitz and take pictures, but who can really imagine the smells and sounds of the most depraved of all situations? The tourists, she writes, can turn away in relief and go to lunch. Can I tell you this? Those who belong to Jesus are not tourists who turn away from the ugliness and go to lunch. We are people who live for beauty even as we long for it. However, when in this life we get glimpses into reflections of eternal beauty, the paradox of it, the seeming contradiction of the presence of eternal beauty alongside the ugliness and the deep depravity of this life, it can be a burden that is too heavy to bear. The talk last year on the, the paradox of beauty, the seeming contradiction of beauty. Makoto Fujimura described his becoming a Christian like this. He said he was in Japan uh, studying an old form of Japanese paintings called Nihonga. He said that the way Jesus led him to, to faith was by confronting him with beauty. It was through, he said, the extravagant crushed minerals he was using in his artwork, malachite, azurite, gold, silver, and others beautiful extravagant materials he was learning to use and mastering. And he said, every day I sought higher transcendence through the extravagant materials. I found success in, experiences, in expressions through Nahanga materials, and yet the weight of beauty I saw in the materials began to crush my own heart. I could not justify the use of extravagant materials if I found my heart unable to contain their glory. The presence of beauty is hard now because it's hard to bear now because its glory can be too much. You look or listen with me just a few verses beyond our text at the weight of glory, not just of God, but the glory of the bride that is described. John says in verse 9 of chapter 21, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a high, great mountain and showed me the the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. If you keep reading, John is beside himself to give us a picture of how beautiful and how glorious the bride is. The walls of the city are built with jasper. The city itself is pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper and sapphire, gate, emerald, onyx, and on and on. It is a description of the eternal weight of glory. But listen... The point of John seeing for us and describing for us this eternal beauty isn't simply to make us long for the sweet by and by that's to come. It's even more to enable us to live for beauty in the ugly and nastiness of the now and now. It's for us to feel the weight of beauty that Fujimura described and not be crushed by it as we refuse to turn our eyes from the very worst of the human predicament. Destiny's children, they hold on. Destiny's children take their cues from, for living for what, from what has been revealed by God. You see, the churches that John was writing to in Revelation, they were in a fight. They were suffering persecution. They were facing poverty. They were facing political oppression. They were facing the temptation to compromise their faith so that life would be better and easier. They needed to know that God's promise that their destiny was to be with him as he remade everything was more certain than what their eyes were seeing and that their ears were hearing. And it is the same thing we need to know. God's promise, God's promise of beauty and renovation and restoration is more certain than anything our eyes tell us to the contrary. People who have this destiny can live for beauty now even as they long for it. Do you understand that because of who God is, He can declare in verse 6, he says, it is done. It's done. The Greek text literally says, they are done. Not a singular, it is done. Everything I said was going to take place, everything that I promised, they're already done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the the God of the beginning of history, the God of the end of history, and the God of everything in between. Let me close this by sharing two things that help us to live for beauty right now. First, first, listen, in Jesus Christ, God has smiled on you. Do you belong to Jesus? God delights over you. One facet of beauty is the fact that it delights you are beautiful. In Christ, God looks at you and he is smiling. I know you still have problems. I know you still fight temptation, but God is still smiling. Esther Lightcap Meek, she writes in her book, um, I forget the title of the book, but here's what she says. (laughs) 
in talking about beauty, she says, a sense of personal beauty comes, I believe, only in the generous, self-giving gaze, the noticing regard of another person. And then she says, a, a sense of personal beauty is nevertheless accessible to all in the life-giving, noticing regard of Jesus Christ. If when human noticing regard fails to occur, any person may nevertheless experience it in the gaze of the Lord, in personal redemption, in the celebration of the Eucharist. His alone is the face that will not go away. His alone is the face that will not go away. And his alone is our highest joy. In Christ, we realize that we are ever before the loving, generous, self-giving gaze, the noticing regard of our Savior. And he will never turn his face away. He smiles and rejoices over his people. And the second thing is this, that nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. The loud voice from heaven says to John that God will wipe away every tear, that there will be no more death, that there will be no more mourning, that there will be no more crying, that there will be no more pain. These things have, have passed away. But please know that today's tears, today's deaths, today's mournings, today's cryings, today's pains, they are not wasted. They're not wanted, but they're not wasted. Notice this with me, please. That what, God, what John sees in verse 2 is a holy city descending out of heaven from God after it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. These are passive verbs in that verse. The emphasis is that it is God who prepared and adorned the bride. He was the one who selected the wedding dress. He was the one who, uh, who selected the, the, the location and the date. He was the makeup artist and the hairstylist. He even drove the limo because it says she came down out of heaven from God. How did he prepare her for the wedding day? It was through the tears, through the mornings, through the cryings and the pain. He equipped her to endure by faith as a part of her beautification. This enables us to keep our eyes open and to keep living for beauty in our place. Even now, following Jesus' lead, we live for beauty just the way our Savior did. We celebrate the fact that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exists in eternal beauty and glory refused to turn his eyes away from the darkness of the world. And so the Son left his beautiful communion to take on our fragility and our weakness and our vulnerability so that he could restore us to beautiful, intimate communion with God and with one another. Secure in that beauty. Secure in that beauty, we see the darkness of the world and we keep looking for, pointing out how this world, even though things are often terrible and tragic, how this world is still yet charged 
with the glory and the grandeur and of our God, and we keep striving and living and working for that beauty by his strength and power and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promise. Thank you that every promise that you make is rock solid no matter what our eyes may tell us. We thank you for the promise of beautification. We thank you that you are the God who is making all things new and it is done. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us the strength and the grace to live in that reality even now, every day, in our communities, in our place, as we long for the fullness of your beauty in remaking all things. Amen.